Until you value yourself, you won't value your time. Until you value your time, you won't do anything with it. That was a psychologist, M. Scott Peck. This is Eyeball, and I'm your host, John Loomis. And today we have ace retoucher, Zach Vitale, my partner in photographic crime these many years, on the podcast to talk all things post-production. And yes, for those of you who know Zach, this is a kinder, gentler, sweeter side, still with F-bombs, sure. But today we're talking kindness as creativity, self-worth and professional value, the always difficult finding joy and the success of others, and stress baking. Stay tuned. This episode, by the way, is brought to you by I Made Bread. Fuck you, coronavirus. <laughs> it's brought to you by sourdough. <laughs> well, you you are a baker. Have you, have you gone down the sourdough route yet? I have not. I have I've resisted sourdough. I don't know why. It's just uh, the bread thing is a little bit tough for me. I don't know why anything with like growing something and then rising I kill everything. So I just, I put some, my friend Noah sent me some seeds a couple of weeks ago and I just put them in like seed starter. Yes. Yeah, so I was going to ask if that, that went um, to plants also. It does. But like, I, I mean, I know they're going to die. I just keep doing it. And like, I feel really bad about it. I'm looking at them right now. And like, it's, they, it's so promising. And you just know it's all going to. The thing that people who don't garden much or don't have much confidence do is they do a combination of overwatering and then neglecting. Yeah. I've also heard the transplant process. One of my friends from Boston said something about like the transplanting process is traumatic for plants or it something is. and they frequently die. I mean, it makes sense. You know, I don't like moving either. So, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I'm constantly looking out my window and wishing there was something green there. So I have all these little pots. So bring it inside. Yeah. Stuff. It sounds like you need something like a peace lily. Because a peace lily is brilliant because it needs very little light, loves being mm-hmm. inside, and it's dramatic in the way it needs watering. Like it can like it faints. Like it's like, oh no. And you're like, oh, oh so it, tells it you. really tells you. It's like oh, it's very see, dramatic. I like that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not like a, a cactus. And you're always like, what the fuck do you need, man? Yeah, or like the succulents no. thing is tough because they go within a week, they just die. Honestly, like frizzle up. Yeah, you're fuck just like, succulents. what did I do to I'm you? I'm actually good at gardening. Yeah. I hate succulents. I'm, I just cannot figure out what's going on. And yet it's the first thing that everybody will tell you to get if you're bad at gardening is a succulent. And then you kill them and you're like, wow, I guess I literally have no chance of ever succeeding at this endeavor. Ever. And it's the, I think um, it, to me, at least it just is just me personally. It's the hardest thing. Now it's much easier when you live in places that don't have so much humidity inside because of a combination of radiators and blah, 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 whatever else. Yeah. And so, you know, if you live in an arid place, they always kind of can probably use a little bit of water, right. but we've had terrible luck with them in many different configurations. And we've actually, we've tried kind of hard. Yeah. Fuck succulents. That's my advice for everyone yeah, out there. I, it's just, I don't know. I've tried hard and it just never, it never works out. It looks okay for like two or three months and I'm feeling good about it. And then suddenly like everything just decides to die at the same time. They all are just like, fuck it. I'm done. Fucking I'm done. And, uh, 
Yeah, it's basically the story of succulents in my apartment. Is that they just off so here, themselves that's after eight great. Weeks. So we, if we've accomplished nothing else, it's to tell the the rest of the world about how much succulents suck and to get peace you lily. a peace lily. It's okay. it's the, it's the route to happiness. It's Plus, happen. it's going to clean the air in your apartment. It's a it's a yeah. I like I like the idea of something communicating with me before it's too late. You know, that's the problem is every time I notice something, it's too late. See this, to now, this it, is this is so. exactly like a, <laughs> we've, we've inadvertently back ended our way into working with clients and other photographers. <laughs> I like it, except for the communication, which is shit and always too late. That's kind of yeah, the, the Zach Vitale sto- retouching story. That's, that's the story of my life. <laughs> I was thinking about our relationship working together and we've worked on a lot of projects over the years. And even with that shorthand we've developed, it is hard to communicate about specific things and creative visions that's in your head that then another artist is going to interpolate and then run with. Because what we're doing is so personal and some of the words we use are not specific in any real way. It's almost like we need a more of a medical shorthand to describe not just left, right, but the radial, the like, you know, like. You know, when I hear my wife talk yeah. about radiology, when I hear her, you know, recording scans, she happens to not, I'm very close to our shared office right now. And she's not here talking about, <laughs> you know, what's terribly wrong with this baby's, you know, whatever, but there's, there's much more specific words and vocabulary they use to describe yeah. every little possible nuance. And maybe we need more of that. But in general, I think it's important to remember that even for people who work together closely, Communication is fraught and getting across what you mean is a long, lengthy process. It needs kindness and open heartedness and like patience. And, you know, especially as most of our work has been probably on deadline or at least a lot of it, because I, most of it had been done for editorial clients. You know, it's, it's crazy to me. I always, you know, every once in a while, because I was stressed out, sometimes the interchange, I could feel that you're like, I'm trying to help you, dude, but I do not understand what you mean. Like, what did this weird word you just use mean? Because it, yeah, the the actual definition of it doesn't mean anything about what we're talking about. Right. Exactly. And it means something different to everyone. Totally. Um, that's the funny thing is that everybody has their own language in a weird way. And the same words inter like overlap between everybody's different languages, but mean something completely different in the context of every individual situation you're dealing with. So Someone can say like, oh, make it more poppy or I need to lift it a little bit. Or yeah, poppy is a dangerous one. You're like, yeah, brightness and contrast, know, I guess. Contrast like that. That is a function of a specific set of adjustments that makes kind of sense. And I think once you become more experienced working with specific people, you start to understand the things that they're looking for. And you kind of can start to get it 90 percent of the way there before you even engage in a conversation. But. It is pretty challenging sometimes figuring out what people want. I think there are also client considerations for every single job insofar as like person X has a look that they like to employ for every single job. There's still considerations for the person that they're delivering files to. And maybe that job specifically requires like a more conservative touch or like a little bit less aggressive where those people really like to go for it or something. So then you have to figure out how to please the photographer and kind of make it look like that person's photo. But at the same time, 
you know, make sure the client is happy with how things are looking and make sure it gels in the context. Right. And that doesn't even bring into the fold the times when they want something which physically from a resource perspective, it doesn't exist in the actual pixel data you have to work with. Like I remember us talking about, you know, we won't be using names in a negative light and, you know, talking today, <laughs> less there's something more in your coffee than it's in my coffee. But, <laughs> you know, I remember us talking about certain projects you were working on in a, you know, certain advertising campaigns and they wanted a thing which literally was not there at all. It wasn't yeah. like there was something to brighten or warm up or it, like it did not exist. And so yeah. we're always working on these different sets of expectations. That's part of the creative process. I think for us specifically, we over time kind of found the right amount of vibe that I needed from you that make it felt slightly heightened, but real. Like, you know, you're a very good retoucher. I think you're extremely talented. Not only are you thoughtful and kind and creative and a good partner, but you work crazy fast. And oftentimes what I need from you is something which is like, laughably easy for you to deliver because of your skill level. And so my clients benefit from the fact that you are working, you, you know, we've worked together long enough and you work quickly enough that often because you're sliding me into a busy schedule and when you're dealing with a lot of other things that have been on, you know, you've been working on for days and weeks. My work for you sometimes is like a little amuse bouche. It's like a cl- palate cleanser <laughs> in between you going back to working on a Hershey's campaign or something where you're just like moving around chocolate hues and shit. I think the very first time we started working together was probably a cover or something like that. And you came back with a beautiful version of what it could be, but it was just, it no longer felt like my picture was just too well done. It was too retouched. It was too pretty. It was too everything. And I was like, Oh, awesome. It was exciting to see someone actually make the picture look like the best (laughs) version of itself. But the way I see the world is that I love that the world is enough and that, you know, people are real and that these things exist. Yeah. And that the manipulation is toned down. Now, obviously, it's contrived and it's, it's a portrait set and there's lots of lights and we're doing a million things which are cheating. For sure. But, you know, I think we found that whatever percentage was, you know, like if 100 is, you know, really retouched, we were at like, I don't know, 50 or 60 or something like that. And then right. some of my clients, you know, specifically, I remember Golf Digest and Christian Yost, we were, you know, we, we were 50 or below with some with some project. And they were like, this looks great, but it's, it's too much retouching. And we thought we had been conservative and we scaled it way back. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I I like this. This is better. And like, it was very little touched. I mean, almost, you know, just a couple, you know, I think we smoothed out a wrinkle or something like that. That was about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I prefer that openly. Like I, and it's not because I want to do less work. I think real life is awesome and like things look cool. And I did most of the time when I look at types of, photos that you know come through for jobs my inclination is to do less work rather than more work i don't think there's something wrong with a wrinkle on somebody's face or like an age spot on someone's hand or something those things don't i think they're sort of like evidence of living and i think that's an interesting thing in a person rather than something that needs to be removed i had worked at a e-commerce like churn it out fast fashion type of place for two and a half years, a year and a half. I worked there for, um, in a freelance capacity. And then I took a full-time job that only lasted 11 months. I hated it. I got fired. It was the worst. (laughs) I mean, and it takes a lot for me to get fired, but I just, I was really not, it, uh, it did not gel with me. 
during that whole entire time there, I think a lot of the conversations that I was having on a daily basis were about things that were wrong with things mm-hmm. or people, you know, oh, that model, she's got that thing on her face. The buyers don't like it. Can you take care of that? Or like she has a tattoo right there and it like doesn't look good with this brand that doesn't like that look or like oh, her thighs are a little whatever. Can you move that in? I think there are considerations that need to be made for every single job. You know, certain times clothes need to fit well in order to sell or whatever. And sometimes, you know, they don't get a size that's correct for the model and they can't tailor it properly. So it needs to look like it fits better. So you have to liquefy the edges, et cetera, et cetera. See that, that right there, that turned on a lot of people. Liquefy the edges. <laughs> Everyone's like, ooh, wait a second. I just think that human beings are so interesting and individual And especially when somebody's being featured for something, if I'm reading about that person or they're being featured for something they've done, or like I'm getting to know them by way of this article and this series of photos, I think it's, um, I don't know, disrespectful is a bad word, but I don't, I think there's a level of dishonesty that comes with like modifying a photo too much. And in the beginning of a retouching relationship, when I work with a person, I tend to like to go too far and see what their reaction is rather than I I have this thing where one thing I really don't like is doing this like asymptotic approach to doneness where I'm going like one step and then I go a little bit more and see if you like it and go a little bit more and see if I would rather like go too far scale back so I can understand. And then then we we're not at that point where, where we're trying to reach for something. We're saying like, well, I can see now that you did X, Y, Z, and I like X and Y, but Z is a little bit too much for me. Can we scale that back 50%? And then I can independently adjust any of those easily. I think that's one of the biggest relevations about people working with retouchers for the first time is that the nature of how you work and how good retouchers work is that they build systems which are independently scalable. And that's not what even, I mean, I've been working as a photographer for a very long time but I'm a photographer. I'm not a retoucher. And so my right. Photoshop skills are still stuck in like 2001. I've gotten tiny bit smarter here and there over the time and, you know, whatever. But it's still hard for me to think in terms of hierarchies of scalability, in terms of the different things I'm trying to do with a photo that I can really, for, you know, from a client perspective, go back and say, oh, I no problem. 10% less on that. I'd have to start over. Yeah. And so that's part of the process in learning how to work with you also. It's just kind of figuring out like, okay, how do you see this picture and how are you going to attack the way in which we're going to work on it together? And so that, that was an interesting and also a humbling way to learn about like, oh, this is the thing I'm most expert at. And there's many ways in which I don't really understand. Like, you know, we all are st- constantly struggling with like skin tone and there are things I think I understand about you know, what this camera system does versus that camera system does. And, you know, like we could talk all day about, you know, greens and shadows and, you know, whatever else is going to be depending on the system, but there's that. And then there's someone who's seeing stuff all the time and can see very clearly, Oh, well, you know, it's just this. Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, like, I don't know. I think about myself frequently in the context of like other retouchers and how I work versus how other people work. And I think we all work, generally speaking, in the same way where if we're working with a client, we have to anticipate the fact that they're going to want adjustments made later and have that whole entire thing made, have to have the process and the construction of a file be amenable to somebody coming in at any point in the process and being like, 
I don't like that. Or five people could say that they like something, but then, you know, they show it to the CEO or something. And that person has a random problem with it. And you have to go back and you've done 10 things since you did that thing that they don't like anymore. You have to get rid of that old thing while still keeping the other things that you did on top of it. Sometimes the time just I'm rushing because somebody's got something they need in six hours and it's six hours worth of work. And just the construction part of it actually is an independently time consuming part of the job sometimes as well. So like nesting folders and constructing things in an orderly way and making it, it's my preference to have like a nice tidy file that I can like nest folders and group them and then I can name them and I can turn things on and off easily. And I'll know exactly six months from now I can open the file and can see exactly what I did the whole time and like just turn something off and then it's done. There are times where that's just physically not possible because I'm one person and somebody wants something so quickly and that stresses me out. You know, it's not my preference. Sure. And there's been clients have dropped 50 things on you and, you know, on deadline. Yeah. Yeah. And then they come back later. I think institutionally, you know, and this is just like a greater gripe I have, I guess, about stuff. And it's, it's not anybody specific fault, but you know, somebody up top wants something quickly and that trickles down to like nine other people. And it just keeps going down and down and down. And then like somebody is just overwhelmed with an ask and it's not their fault to ask for something quickly. That's unreasonable. And I don't know all the time that they understand that what they're asking for is crazy sometimes just physically. Frequently I'm taking jobs where like I'm effectively functioning like a retouching studio with multiple bodies that are on call working at all times. Right. But I'm one person that has to reach out for supplemental or auxiliary help to other folks to help me get it done. You know, I'm working overnight. Somebody else is working overnight. I'm getting paths clipped. It all has to come together. It's like a bunch of ingredients that all get put in a big soup. And then, you know, I get all the ingredients at the end. And then in a weird way, I guess I'm the chef that has to like put all the ingredients together and throw a plate out and make it look good and have everybody be happy. For a long time, I like turned down jobs where I would need to involve other people because I was, I don't want to use the word territorial, but I was like a little bit nervous that if, if somebody else was doing something that I couldn't necessarily control the quality or it wouldn't be the way that I wanted it to be. I started, you know, getting that help and the jobs increasingly got larger, but at the same time, the clients started asking for a lot more and it sure. really, I think especially in recent years, just the demands on turnaround and volume and scale have really increased a lot. You know, people want multiple rounds of revisions. You know, everybody wants the opportunity to insert their opinion on something, which is completely reasonable. Well, it's also the conference call mentality where someone realizes they haven't said anything in the very end. They're like, oh, well, listen, I just want to... uh, you know, just so they're on record having said something on this call, even though it is completely pointless. Exactly. I think a lot of it is just like justifying the fact that you're in the position you're in. So you feel like you need to say something. And then a lot of times they don't understand that what they're saying is like ridiculous. Or so, that's already um, been talked about or that that's already been dismissed or that, you know, some other thing. And then at some point somebody heard like, oh, you know, they had a job where they, they needed layered files or something to be able to turn a shadow on or off. And then there's an extremely elaborate or complicated job where then somebody has been conditioned to ask for layered files just because that's what they think they need to do. But like delivering a layered file is a far more complicated and slightly like problematic thing on my end sometimes. Um, 
for me, there's a little bit of like an IP issue oh, with interesting layered files. It would be like going to a restaurant and getting a great meal and then demanding the chef the recipe. give you yeah. the recipe so that you don't have to go back to the restaurant again and you can make it from home. Sometimes the necessity for a layered file to turn on logos on or off is fine, but I've been increasingly finding clients want all of the adjustments as well. And that's an interesting conversation <laughs> a lot of times. But, uh, uh, I'm going to translate some I'm, at some point in this podcast, I'll start translating Zach Vitale's speech for, for the <laughs> listeners. So they understand what you kind of mean, you know, and to some degree, that's part of my job is I've happened to, for some reason, other than Guido, of course, who is as big of an <laughs> asshole, if not more than I am. I've talked to a lot of nice people and they're like, and they say things and they're really underplaying it. And then, you know, they're like, Oh, it's interesting. Yeah. No, I think the thing is though, I think we're, we all mean well, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm a little bit of like a different type of retoucher and don't in any way represent everybody. I don't think I, I like in, in everything I'm saying, I think I have a way of doing business that probably isn't the way that a lot of other people do business. I would agree with that. Work. It's really personal for me. I take work for people that I like and respect and I get excited about working for them. If I see an email pop in my inbox and my immediate instinct is to cringe or be like, oh, I'll deal with that later. The prospects of the future for me working with you are not <laughs> that good. Right. I feel like I have to be personally invested in what I'm working on in order to produce the, the best work possible. Now, that's like a two-edged sword. I think on one end, it really leads to like a validating work experience for me mm-hmm. and something that I, I feel like I'm really fortunate to work with a lot of people that I respect a lot and care for very deeply. On the other hand, you know, everybody needs to make a living. So there are jobs that we all take every single day. There's like 80% of the work that most of us work on we don't talk about, sure. <laughs> which is like a real thing. A lot of those things are challenging because I desperately want to care about the things that I'm working on and spend the time on them. But sometimes you just have to crank stuff out and it's a job and you have to detach yourself from it and just be like, okay, this is work. It's not going to be perfect. Well, it doesn't have to also only be the grind that being part of the grind and part of the muscle memory is preparing you for things you care about more. So, you know, part of that, especially when I'm talking to younger creatives who are trying to learn a thing, that grind, taking whatever the work is and making it count and, and doing the work to make it good on whatever level is possible for that job is also an important part of the process. I mean, what you're talking about is a kind of a more mature understanding of what kind of work do I want to produce and what makes me happy and what's personally fulfilling and where does that line square up with, you know, what I owe and mit- well, rent like, or mortgage how have you, or whatever else. How have you navigated that? Like, how have you kind of approached that throughout your career? Kind of similarly to what I just said. I mean, I think early on, you know, if you called me up and you said, Hey, listen, we really love you to shoot whatever, depending on what year it was, I was probably, you know, especially early in the year when you don't know how the year is going to start. You know, if you always get that call or email on like January 4th, you're like, Hey, listen, we have this thing. The money's not quite right. You don't, you're not in love with the idea, but you're like, well, it's got to start somehow. And you're like, okay. And then, you know, then suddenly January 8th, you get three calls from clients who, are worth yep, your time. You're always. like, God damn it. Why the fuck did I bother myself why with this first did I thing? I say yes to that thing. Sure. But yep. there's nothing wrong with that though. That's fine. Yeah. 
I have worked with or not worked with a lot of clients on emotional levels because I was just like, you know what? No, you, you've already, I've given you opportunities. You have decided that you don't want to be professional with me. You don't have enough money for me to bother with it. So you're out, you're done. And I've, you know, I've had right. reps along the years. I said, this person no longer can hire me, you know, just that they're, yeah. they're done. And occasionally that would create some discord with the rep. They're like, well, how, why would you say you're not going to work with because I actually give a shit. And this person <laughs> has decided that they don't give a shit about me and what right. radically, you know, obvious ways. And so, nope, I'm out. I'm not going to do that. Exactly. So, you know, that's, a, that's a part of growing and learning and, and creativity. And there's no, you know, there's no paint by numbers way to do that. Lots of people are different. I mean, the things that get Guido out of the house to name a name again, or the things that get other photographers out of the house have very different bars. I mean, I have photographers. I really respect their work that they love saying yes. And they'll say yes to all kinds of crazy shit. Cause they, they just want to leave the house. They want to go out in the world. They want to walk around. They don't really care about the circumstances of every job. They just don't care. And now part of that is probably some of those jobs they get are worth enough that, it's fun to say yes to jobs that they they don't need to care about how much they are. The value proposition is I think part of what's dangerous today with the things changing so much. um, And I want to talk to you a little bit about about how the industry is clearly changing a lot, you know, as we speak and over the last three years, I have clients who I've worked with at a very high level who are now trying to, they're, you know, they're bailing water out of the ship. They're trying to figure out what, how this is going to work. They're like, listen, can we do this for this? And you're like, well, not really, you know, because I've done the same thing for you for double that. If I say right. yes to this, this yeah. is the new rate. This isn't this one time rate. That's not how people work. We don't accept that right. things are a temporary thing and then move on. Even though, you know, we know that there are sales at the place we buy shoes for photography. It costs what it costs. And it's kind of a slow, gradual rise. It doesn't, if you drop it way down for one project, oftentimes that person won't consider it to be a one-time thing. We'll say, Oh, now I can get this for this at, this, at this place you're forever. You're forever. That person said at that price. Totally. And you it. fought really Always. hard to climb that mountain up. So it's a dangerous yep. proposition and something we're all going to have to face. And, and part of that over the next few years is I'm going to have to just let some of that shit go because unless I'm not going to accept any jobs, some of them are going to be worth less because the, you know, especially from an editorial perspective, they don't have any money I mean, they have nothing and they're trying right. to do something. Now, what is interesting to me about the way you're talking about people from a retouching perspective, needing more, I would think they would say it's control in the same way. They want more rights from me. They want control, more control from you after the fact it's because they're yeah. so much more scared of their own choices, right? I mean, they don't know what they need or want. And so sure. they want to build in more want- flexibility. They don't want to be the person who, for whatever reason, when they suddenly want to use something as an eight by well, 10, you know, single page print thing, the file isn't there. And then they have to reach out again and they have to pay more. And like, they just want everything and as much latitude from everything for every single channel for perpetuity forever. You know, I think that they look at it as like, I want to talk to this person one time and then get everything I could possibly need forever and not deal with it and not have to get asked by someone and then not have an affirmative answer for them later. Totally. And, and like I understand it's top down, right? It's their boss demanding the this thing because they think that's, Oh, here's what you do. You, you know, you, here's the pro move on this. But in fact, 
Right. They're getting a worse relationship with the creative they're working with. And because they're so afraid of choices, they're not making any. And so the content they're ultimately putting out to the world is shittier because of it, because they don't even know what they want to say. And that's kind of what we've been seeing over the last few years is that everything kind of looks the same and everyone's trying to shade things and like, just like, Ooh, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know. And the outlets that have just known who they are and have enough people still employed there who remember what they were are able to move forward in the future with a sense of like clarity. Everyone else is just kind of fumbling. It's crazy to me. Like it's, it seems so obvious that, you know, this authenticity we're searching for in a million different ways is not being carried through in these creative acts and choices they're making because. Yeah. I mean, there's like a, a risk averse kind of stance that a lot of people are taking. I think again, individually, if you look at any company as sort of like a tiered hierarchy, everybody is scared of the person above them and we're all protective of our jobs and positions and don't want those things to go away because nothing feels stable. And I think especially in the print industry um, in the past five years, 10 years, 15 years, you know, things have been perpetually just like on the way down and, and there's more fear and about just what the future looks like. And I think you don't want to be the person who has to say no or who doesn't have a good answer or imprint something on the person who you report to where they can come back and be like, you know what? I really wanted that thing from Dan or from Jessica and fucking she Dan and Jessica, she, she, <laughs> fucking Jessica. Um, <laughs> you know, she, she couldn't give me what I wanted when I asked about it. And you know, what? I'm just going to make a mental note of that. Mm-hmm. She wasn't ready mm-hmm. for the thing I asked for. I know it's, and it's, it's, it's all it's, about readiness too. Oh, they weren't ready for big yeah. for prime time. It's like, Maybe they had a different idea about what the fuck you were doing. And maybe if you had been patient, you would have learned something. I, I, I'm very sympathetic to that. And I get it because I, I had like a very, very, very brief but intense experience in a full-time job. I understand that having a direct report relationship with someone, you really do take a very self-protective stance where you just want to have all of your ducks in a row for any possible thing that comes up. And I'm, I really am sympathetic to that. I try to be as flexible as possible whenever I work with someone and, and give them stuff. What I try to communicate when somebody asks me for something is like, okay, well, I worked on your files so that they're suitable for web, but now you're saying that you want them for like a bus stop. You know what I mean? Or like the side of a bus or subway ads or something. And because the work required to prepare a file in a larger format like that increases exponentially, the cleanup, just the selections and masking need to be that much more precise and exacting. You frequently have to add like a lot more really nuanced adjustments on something if somebody's going to be six inches away from it, seeing it really big and it has to be beautiful and you know, impactful, then I'll say like, okay, well, it's going to take me a lot more time for that. If you want the layered file, like I'm not going to send you a big mess of a layered file. Like I name all of my folders. I nest them nicely so that they, it looks professional. You know what I mean? Like that's the type of work that I want to put out there. And then sometimes they're like, oh, well, we really need it by end of day today. And it's like, well, you're asking me to do like a ton of work. (laughs) And now you want it by the end of the day today. It's not just done. I really don't blame people sometimes because I just think they don't know. 
I'm a real big teamwork person and I try to find out as much about everybody's role in the process because I think that education informs me and helps me understand smart. what I can do specifically in my role to make things better for everyone. You know, I'm not on set that much. I work mostly remotely, but when I was on set more frequently for different people um, and I was assisting and teching for a while when I was in Boston, I would watch like food stylists like a hawk or assistants setting up lights or techs doing stuff. And, you know, I, I started to learn like, well, if the food stylist is moving that over there, that means that's an attractive thing that she wants to highlight when she's moving that over there. So that's something that I'm going to focus on in my retouching because she's spending extra time and attention on that thing, mm. you know? So like once you start absorbing those things or, or like, Oh, you know, uh, Kathy, she always likes it when you send multiple versions of files so that she has uh, JPEGs so that she can email them easily to a client, but then also fuller res JPEGs in multiple formats so that she can use them directly in Instagram or whatever. Once you start understanding what people need, and how long it takes them to do their job or what tools are more helpful and effective for them to be successful. I think the team gets stronger and the end result gets better. I think in such a pressure cooker environment, since I'm literally the last person who's touching a file and there's not a lot of time for people to fully understand what's involved in retouching sometimes. And therefore like people make requests and make asks that are, you know, not physically possible sometimes. Sure. And I think, you know, education is a huge part of our jobs always in that people ask for things. And they, they honestly just don't understand what they're asking for. And that's, that's okay. I mean, people, people ask for all kinds of things and they think, yeah. you know, well, what's the difference? You know, it's the same way that like the last episode that came out, Greg Miller was talking about an art director asking him to bring the large format camera to an ad shoot. And he's like, uh, okay, but that choice has some other choices involved with it, you know? So that's right. just education. That's, that's no problem. As I've done many times in our career and partnership working together, I would make the counterpoint that some of these clients need to be, to be told to go fuck off. And some right. of the asks are dumb and some of the ways in which we can protect ourselves as creatives. And this is obviously just my personality to some degree, not, not completely, but partly, especially my business personality is that I don't get as much bullshit coming into my inbox anymore because I've spent, 20 years deflecting bullshit. And so right. it means I lose out on opportunities, which could be cool, but it also means that I don't have to deal with people who aren't coming ready to be a collaborative partner with me sometimes. Now right. that is a long process to curate. It involves sure. a lot of saying no. And obviously you, you say no, everyone says no to some things, but you know, and right now saying no to some degree is a luxury. It's also a way that we, define our business strategy. There are things that literally are not worth your time and not just your time or my time, but any creative's time. And there are parts of the industry that just feed off people's willingness and interest in collaboration. And absolutely, it's like a, you know, it's, it's kind of this weird, you know, disease in the photo industry in which in the same way that photo contests kind of prey on people's hope for a better tomorrow at the expense of, you know, their credit card today. Some of these people are trying to get unfair amounts of work out of people for very low rates. And over time, it becomes the standard for what things cost, even though it's completely out of whack with 
how things actually work, you know, and that's it, it, right. it's part of the reason why my invoices, they look, they're all wonky now. I mean, it should just be, I love the invoice was just a, okay, here's what it cost, you know, or here's a fee, which covers my cost of living and covers my equipment. It covers what it costs for me to come and do your project. That'd be so clean. I, and I wouldn't care how much time I spend or whatever. I wouldn't care, you know, if you use more of this resource or that resource, I, I, I'd just be fine with it. But because mm-hmm. if it's a flat fee, you're probably getting fucked now. My right. invoices show, you know, the day rate or the project fee or whatever else are relatively low or very, certainly very competitive. And then they get fucked on dumb shit. You know, that's where you're actually yeah. making your money. And I understand how the way that works. And I'm, I, you know, I've been aware of it forever and that's how I've been able to be a successful photographer. But I also have always realized and, and been frustrated how stupid it is. If we could just respect each other as artists a little more, we could just more cleanly move through this, you know, these collaborations, these partnerships to make better work. Right. So it's both those things. It's, it's saying no and saying, fuck you and saying, you know, you don't get that. And here's why I'm, I mean, I'm happy to explain to you why, what you're asking for is a huge amount of work. Right. I don't want to, I, I understand why you're asking for that. I don't want to diminish the fact that you might think you need that. And maybe you do need that and, you, and you're willing to pay for it. But unless people are shown, I get so many emails saying, Hey, listen, listen, we have this shoot and blah, blah, blah. We really love you to do it. If you could give us a bid, you know, by lunch today, I get it at like 9am for this. Like, you know, it's clearly a situation where they want something to get quickly triple bid or last minute someone falls out or who knows what they, I have no chance of the job at all. And then they, but they want me to do hours and hours worth of research to give them like, like a fair price, which for me to do a job, which, doesn't even have all of the different variables intact for me to know, like what's the actual end usage? Where is this really going? Who's the real client? How many people are involved? Will there be models or not? Like there's a million things I do not know. And then, so, and you know, over time I used to take those very seriously and I'd pull my hair out and we caught talking to all my friends and we try and figure all this stuff out. We're trying to be fair. We're trying to be honest. We're trying to be respectful to the industry. And now I say, uh, it costs $45,000. You're like, Oh, what? I'm like, yeah, well, this, I run into that this doesn't lot. exist. It never will exist. Fuck you. Yeah. And if it does exist, it costs $45,000. My older brother once asked me, he got married oh, a long time ago now, but I had been a professional photographer for enough time that I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what I did not want to do. One of the things I did not want to do was photograph my older brother's wedding. I wanted to be drunk <laughs> at my older brother's <laughs> wedding. And so he was having a wedding in America and his wife is Colombian and they were having this amazing wedding in Bogota and in the surrounding area. Whoa. And he was like, well, how much would it cost me to hire you to shoot our wedding? And I was like $45,000. I don't remember what I said. $60,000. I said some insane number. He's like, what, what, what are you talking about? I was like, that's how much I don't want to do it. So if you yeah. want to pay me that much money, I will take it seriously and I will do it. But that's what it's worth to me. And that's part right. of this whole thing is like the thing we don't, especially young drivers don't see is like, what are these jobs worth to you? If this job, yeah. you fucking hate it, then it has to be worth more to you to actually say yes. And it's not just money. Yeah. It's also time and stress and everything else. Now that's a luxury. I understand that, but it has to be a part about the way we start weighing things over time. No, it's totally true. The ability to say no or value my time appropriately is something it, it took me a long time to get to that point. It took you longer than I wanted <laughs> to. I, I was actively campaigning you 
for you to raise your rates for years. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I didn't do it. Um, and like, you know, I mean, I think, I think everyone has their own like journey or whatever. It's a new I mean, age You know how many phone calls it. I had with Guido or with Henry Hung. And I was just like, it was like, dude, we got to get Zach to raise his rates. He's accepting you too know, much work. That's it's, it's so funny. Cause like for just a long time, I was doing fine and I was really busy, but I don't think I value the work that I was doing. I was like, I'm not creating anything. Other people are creators. I'm, uh, I don't know. I've like mentally thought a lot about this. Did it feel easy? Um, Was that part of it? Like digital. Yeah. I don't, I really invest myself a lot in getting better at the thing that I'm doing and having it feel easy and be quick and then providing a client experience that makes things feel really smooth and easy and, and not stressful. And like, yes, I can do that for you. And then you get it an hour later or whatever. And I think that one of the things with me sometimes is where other people would do it in an hour and then sit on it for two days and send it at that point. You know, for me, I think, I like it feeling like a dialogue. You know what I mean? We're like, Oh yeah, I'll do that. I'll take care of that right now. And then sending it to you and then not having this huge gap. And when it's fresh on our minds and we're talking about it, then showing you something and saying, what do you think about this? Like, does that take care of the problem that we just talked about? Like, how does that look? Do I need to do more on that? And I think that that sometimes had created an impression that it was like, Oh, it took him two seconds. So like, 20 bucks. No, but see, <laughs> I think that's, like it's that. just, that's also uh-huh. about who you're working with. I mean, you've delivered files way before they were due to me many times. And I'm not going to sit in those files. I'm going to give them to my client because they're the ones who need them. Right. And it's stupid for me to sit on them. Now I totally. will always make sure they fucking understand that we're paying, you know, whatever we're paying, which is your full rate is not enough. And sometimes I've made you double our invoice to the client. Cause I'm like, no, it can't be that low. Cause I'm charging them you know, 10 grand, you can't charge them a hundred dollars for their 11 finals or whatever. You know, it was never that low, but part of it is that, you know, and that's, you're right. You have to defend rates when it's quick, but your speed should be what costs even more, not less. Like, you know, you know, there's the famous thing about the, there was a senior partner at Pentagram. Um, it was a female designer. I can't remember her name on top of my head right now. But she famously designed this logo for this Fortune 500 company, and she had a brainstorm. And you know, the first weekend it was even a project. She came up with the final product and whipped it together, and it was beautiful, and I loved it. And then they sent in the invoice, and it was all very clean and done. And you know, the invoice was for right. probably a very large amount of money. And they immediately came back and like, "What the fuck? It took you know, it took her, you know, two. You told us it took her two hours this weekend. You said it was going to be like a four week process." Right. How can we possibly be expected to pay this full amount when it only took, you know, whatever period of time by your own, by your own recollecting? She wrote back, it took two hours plus 40 years. Totally. I mean, that's, that's very true. It takes a while to realize that though. I mean, I, I'm not an assertive person. I'm sure you've gleaned that from dealing with me for 10 years or whatever. But at a certain point, like you just have to say, you know, all of the nights at 2 a.m. where you're working overnights to get files to a client or all the time you're spending doing the same file three ways and then looking at them up close, each one and saying, which one gets us where we need to go? And you did three times as much work for the job to deliver just one part, you know, one deliverable for that. You're scrapping two of them. 
but like the time and investment in that, there's value in that. To me, I would just say, well, you're just sending one thing. So, okay, like charge for one thing. But all that time that you're spending thinking about things and asking people questions and going on this like deep intellectual exercise in your apartment or in your studio alone, trying to figure out what best satisfies the client or the brief or the photographer or whoever you're you're delivering things to or what will be most impactful to people walking by when they're seeing a billboard or something. All of that is the product of the experiences that you've been through prior to that moment and those the sacrifices that you've made and the expenses and the long nights and all that kind of stuff. And I think I was a very like here and now person where I would just say, well, it took me like 12 minutes to do it. So whatever. Yeah. But now you, it's, now I, you told I me the price is whatever many, many times. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, I just, I love everyone I work for. I just, I enjoy the experience of working for the people that I work for. That's another thing that makes the money situation asking for money or assigning value to something difficult for me personally is that, I every day live with like a tremendous amount of gratitude for the fact that I can like get out of bed and walk 20 feet to my computer and then field a bunch of emails from people who, for whatever reason, decided to reach out and like email me and ask me to work on their stuff. And I think that is insane and amazing constantly. Yeah, it's fucking great. So it's hard to then after that, when when you have that feeling of like, holy crap, you know, it's so crazy that I get to do this every day. Then to ask for something for that, or like ask for something that in your head feels not aligned with what it potentially might be worth, even though it totally is. And it's probably worth more. It's just, uh, that's always been a little bit difficult for me because I really do love my job. And I, I personally care very deeply for every single person that I work for. It is Work is tremendously personal for me in a probably too far in that direction way, but that's just how I'm built as a person. So they're not, um, they don't need to be conflicting ideas. And that's, you know, when I was talking about raising your rates, part of what I was talking about is I wanted to protect you as a artist and as someone who I know is staying up all night doing all these jobs and not making enough for it. And I I don't care. I know you don't care about the more money that that's arbitrary. You need to be, your time is valuable. Your, your emotional health is valuable. And so part of what needs to be represented by what it costs people to hire you is that you feel healthy and ready and happy and excited. And you, the love your clients will have for you based upon is not based upon your low rates. It's based upon your kindness and your caring and your creativity and your work. So those are, those things don't have to fight against each other. Yeah. What I started to learn is, you know, it was very uncomfortable for me when I started raising my rates. And when I say raising my rates, I mean to like still less than appropriate level. Like you were with me through that whole process. It was a very incremental and step-by-step thing where I would raise them a little bit. And I was terrified and be like, "Uh, I don't know. I don't feel good about this. You know, like, but you had to know the same time that other retouchers of your talents were like charging three times more. At least. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I did a lot of the stuff where it was like, oh, it was no trouble. This was easy. No problem. I'll take care of it. Like, don't even worry right. about it. Like, I did a lot of that stuff. And for friends and stuff, I still sometimes, if if it's something 
you know, whatever, like not a big deal or whatever. I'm, I'm not, I'm not Mr. Like start the clock and like bill you like a jerk. You know, I'm, I'm a human being. I started to feel better about myself as a professional, which trickled into feeling better about myself as a person. Once I started assigning an appropriate value to my time and what generally started happening once I started doing that is a lot of the bullshit jobs that the nasty people who were just kind of, you would get this cycle where like, you undervalued yourself with one person. And then that person was like, Oh man, this guy's the best. I'm going to refer you to like five other people. And all of those people are shitty people. Too. Right. And then they'll just take advantage of you. And pretty people soon you're in this like sure. weird referral cycle with a ton of people who everyone's like, Oh, this guy will work for cheap. You know, I was kind of really deep in that. And then explaining to all of those people suddenly like, Hey, listen, I can't do this anymore. It's too much. A lot of that went away kind of quickly and that having that go away quickly is like a scary thing. Something that defined a lot of time in your life suddenly gone when those people are not contacting you because they view you as too expensive and they think that a intern can do it or oh, my cousin like uh, is good at Photoshop. Sure, there's there's you know, always, that, there's, that always exists, right? So that's, you know, yeah, there, there are like, a lot of photographers who are afraid of flicker. You know, like right. I, we, we don't remember what that totally. was, but like that we're like, oh, fuck, Flickr is going to put us out of business. It's like, well, what the <laughs> fuck are you even talking about? Like, what skills do you think you're bringing to bear? Right. And that's part of that process, you know, and I, I mean, I, I remember the first time that a rep was like, oh, you know, I can get you $600 a day for, you know, digital processing. I was like, what the fuck? Are you serious? I've been charging yeah. 200. They're like, oh, I can definitely get right. 600. I was like, oh, my God, like I just won the lottery. And, you know, and yeah. then you find a new normal and that, you know, whatever. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're very smart to point out that our self value and the way we feel about our skills, but also just our worth has a lot to do with the way we professionally can value our own time and energy. That's like my biggest struggle every day. I mean, I it's still sometimes I, I send in an estimate and I apologize for it. Just insane. I mean, like, who does that? I mean, I guess I do, but I don't know if other people do that. But I'm sometimes I'm like, hey, like, I know this is like, a, you're going to be shocked at this number. I feel really bad. Like, talk to me about it if you, you know, it's a problem. And I write it and I, my fingers are moving on the keyboard and I'm just like, you are such an asshole. Stop it. <laughs> like, stop yourself from doing this. Cause right. like, you should not be apologizing for something that, you know, I'm not inflating numbers. I know how long it's going to take. I know how much it's going to cost me out of my pocket. This is a completely reasonable number that you're asking for. You know, I think you have, there's a rhythm and you have to get used to it and you have to just start to learn to tell yourself you're worth that. That's not a bad thing. You know what I mean? You work really hard. You still work really, really, really hard for everyone. Give them a straight answer. You know what I mean? I found that when I, I bid low on, something because the job is creative or cool. And there's some kind of exchange on my end where I feel like, okay, well being associated with this is neat, or I can work with a client that I really want to work with or get introduced to someone that I think could potentially, you know, open doors to something more creative. That's fun for me. A lot of times by the end of those jobs, I'm completely burnt out. And I like the whole time I know I'm losing money right. because I bid low. And then they feel very 
and this is not every single time, but a lot of times those jobs end up being ones where the client ends up being extremely demanding yeah. and wanting three times more. And they're like, oh, the shoot went so well that instead of 20 selects, we got 40. Isn't that great news? And you're like, that's cool. And then oops, uh, and then they want to like double the budget, but producing 40 files in a set amount of time and producing 20 files in a set of amount of time is a completely different thing. Right. It's not, it doesn't scale times two because you have to make 40 things look good at the same time rather than 20. And suddenly um, no, scales time, produce, scales time four. Yeah. More, more than that. I mean, it's really challenging. So having that conversation with someone being like, you know, scalability, that's not just like a direct X equals Y sort of slope situation. And it's, it's a little bit different. So let's, let's talk about some of the really good uses and really dumb uses of your retouching skills or retouching skills in general. I can point to, I think the dumbest use I've ever put your skills to use that I could think of. And I was actually really excited to do it because I knew how fucking stupid it was. And yet the client demanded it in which we did a dog face swap once. That was awesome. (laughs) Was that for the AAR? I think it was for people. If I remember. Oh, it was for people. Yeah. Yeah. They were on a porch. They were on a porch. It was a family. It was a family a of dog, dog face swap. Golden retriever face yeah. swap. And there was like a glass door or something too, where someone was behind the yeah, door. Yeah, some, like there was something like that. Door, something. There weird. was um. That was, that was a. Uh, I gotta run. Whenever I would, that was that was a run of like people being like, "Oh, you're great at shooting dogs." I'm like, no one's ever said that before or since. Such a weird. So but, weird. You know, that's that Such things things go that way. <laughs> things are like suddenly, suddenly, you know. Your guy shoots mermaids. Like, oh, he's great at mermaids. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. And you're the mermaid, you're the mermaid guy. guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather mermaids than yeah. dogs, personally. I love dogs, but uh, I know. I mean it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, at least it's different. So I thought that was a different. particularly stupid choice. Now, I don't bemoan the fact that that was a choice. And I've actually there have been lots of other things that I was hoping a client would decide would to, ask, to for. ask for and even if i right. probably could have done it i would have immediately asked you because i thought it would have made me giggle to say hey listen <laughs> really pressing deadline on this thing um <laughs> but actually in another podcast our buddy michael wichita at arp oh yeah would told a story about a, he had his aunt his great aunt his aunt some aunt his favorite aunt had personal family photographs that he she wanted him to retouch and he was having a lot of trouble with it. And partially it was like, it was philosophical because they wanted to retouch the actual personality out of the, the kid. And he's like, no, but this is why it's great. You know? Yeah, exactly. But anyway, so he's doing the, he's struggling with all this stuff. And I was like, I don't understand why you didn't just call me and we'd send it to Zach. He's like, Oh man, I thought about that every hour on the hour. I really, and I was like, Oh, I wish you had. Cause I, you know, I, I'd love to be sending Zach like the personal family photographs for retouching. I get that a lot. That's fine. I like, I listen, I'm very close with like all the people that I work with. Like they found an open door. I do that stuff. No problem. I know. I, like I just think stuff. it's funny to uh, give you challenges, which are, which are particularly dumb as much as I really, really, I think I do really like, like I love challenges. Yeah, I, know, I know. I really like, like fucked up things that people send me. I like, I don't know, maybe it was 10 years ago or something. Someone sent me and it was like, four photos from a bar mitzvah and I'd never worked for this person before. It was the first time ever. 
and they had four photos from a bar mitzvah. The brother and like the sister or something were in the photo with the grandmother and then the kid who got bar mitzvahed and someone else or something. And then the brother and the sister had a fight <laughs> after the bar mitzvah. And they wanted to like wipe out the existence of this family. Oh, wow. From the port. It was, it was the most fucked up yeah. thing I've ever worked on in my whole life. And it required like, because you have a void in the photo. Once you do it, there's like somebody on the left and then there's a big space and then there's two people. And it's like, why is there a big Cause, space? Cause of so coronavirus, buddy. See, coronavirus was your best friend. You didn't even know it then. I did not even realize it was, uh, was in the works, but the whole time I was working on it, I was like, why are you doing this? This is so weird and uncomfortable. But I was like, this is going to be pretty tough to do as like a, <laughs> just, just as a, a retouching case. exercise. Yeah, yeah. Cause I had to move the people over and then make shadows behind them to make it look like the whole thing actually happened. There was one lady who had like frizzy hair and then the kid had like the big giant Torah, I think, or whatever, yeah, like holding scrolls, in his yeah. hand, the rolled up. So there were like a lot of things going on. And I was like, this is going to be pretty tricky. And I got to do it times four. And he was like, oh, I got to send the things out because I'm making an album. There were a lot of like independently challenging things on this thing that comes to mind as one of the most demented things. I'm sure they made up and then now want like the real photo. You know what I mean? So it was such a dumb waste of time. But uh, it took like 25 hours oh, to do those yeah. photos. Jeez. It took so long. And there was like $50 of photo or I something. I don't think so we've I ever had like, a single whatever. project with took, with that took 25 hours. Maybe we have. No. I don't know. There was like a Nantucket Vineyard Vines job. Oh, Vineyard job. Vines job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that took a while. It was like the golfer that was kind of an overhead shot with like pink whales. Oh, yeah, the, um, the foam finger the, pink whale thing. Because they yeah. wanted to be in a sea of fucking whales. Yeah. Yeah, but I think I I think That's I rammed that number up their fucking asses, so <laughs> at least you were well compensated for it. Yeah, um and that was the last time I worked for them. So I wonder if there was a correlation. Probably not. Probably Good times. Not. <laughs> anyway, anyway. He looked great. You, uh yeah, he looked great in the Sea of Wales. Yes. It's very on brand. I knew I wanted to talk to you the entire time we've had eyeball. I hadn't noticed in a long time that there are no people left on your website anymore because that's the industry. Like you spend a lot of time doing retouching for still life because that's probably where a lot of the money is in retouching right now. I would imagine. Well, also, I mean, I really, I think that, you know, we were talking about kind of raising rates and sort of adjusting the way that I function as a business person. Um, I think I've also kind of realized like, there's something satisfying to me about these like crazy worlds where like time doesn't exist and like, it's just an object and it's like, or it's a watermelon or like something weird. I like going crazy, like on a bowl of like salad or something. <laughs> you know I mean, it's like, I know it sounds so weird, but like, um, I really, I like take such pleasure out of like those types of things. There are a lot of opportunities to, to make things colorful and make things beautiful and heighten things and lift them Uh-oh. and make them feel like, Oh shit, this is the best hamburger ever. Just by the very nature of still life, because it's not a human face and there's not certain expectations. There's a lot more potential for color and texture and everything else. That makes sense. Yeah. And I, I think that like for a long time, this sounds like totally creepy and weird, but functionally there was no difference between like a human face and a cantaloupe for me. 
like they they present identical challenges. Retouching You've been looking wise. at a lot of pictures of Donald Trump. Like <laughs> That's tangerine. <laughs> oh, my, my bad. You're right. You're right. You're right. It's a large pumpkin face. But like in human interaction being so personal and me like being so connected with the people that I work for and the projects that I'm working with them on, there's like a, a level in, of investment in presenting people in the best way possible and being respectful and honest in the way that they're presented. And I think a lot about those things. I don't like going too far. It doesn't make me happy. Like a lot of times if an editorial job has a portrait of someone, it feels crazy to like vocalize this out loud. But I think a lot about that person opening up the magazine when it comes out and seeing themselves and suddenly being like, oh, well, somebody removed that thing from me. So there must be something wrong with me. Like, I think about that a lot. Sure. Um, and I think I, about that too, but my job isn't to make someone be, I, my job is I, I strive for accuracy. Right, right, right. I don't, I don't strive for objectivity and I don't strive for a lack of editorialization. Like there's, I cannot deliver their version of how they see themselves mm -hmm. to themselves and the world. I can't cause I'm not in their head. All I can do is be in a room with them and try to connect with them or not connect with them on whatever level and try to deliver my impression of what I found in that room. And certainly, you know, using whatever tools and their impression of how I use right. them. So some of what we're talking about is just, complicated by its very nature and i understand that like working on a bowl of chocolate is less complicated because there's a accepted value and you know at, you know every, a group of people can be like well this this does look like chocolate and we did these things to it it would look more like chocolate right and i think like i the, the reason i work for you is because i think you get that i think there are a lot of you know i think you get into beauty and fashion retouching and a lot of times i just am uncomfortable with some of the things that are being asked. I think there's been a movement towards keeping things more real lately, which I think is sure. a wonderful thing that should have happened a long time ago. And I think that's always been there. There's always been that real element, but like the over retouching thing has always been problematic to me. And having been a part of that for a little while, it really messed with my head. If I was you, I probably on my wall would have the cover of GQ, the comedian issue or the funny issue, whatever they call it. They they played off the I think it was the Vanity Fair cover where there was an accidentally like an extra arm oh, or yeah. something. I love those things. You know, so good. The retouchers just get lost in all of the shit they've moved around, and you it's know. true. I mean, like I think sometimes people don't even pretend anymore that it was like a photo. You know what I mean? Like, no, just, it's an optical illusion. Like it's we, it's hard for us to as we keep changing and changing and changing, it becomes more of or less of a thing that actually happened. It's almost hard to keep track of where the, all the fucking limbs are. Yeah. And then it's out there. And so I loved when they used everyone had like too many arms or too many legs or it was just like all fucked up yeah. intentionally. Like and you're Seth, like, God, Seth so Rogen great. was maybe on that cover. Yeah, or exactly. Um, it, it's true though. Like, I don't, I feel like I can more comfortably experiment on things and kind of, I'm a very like graphic, colorful. Like if you, if you saw my apartment, I only have illustrations up. I like that kind of, suspended time slice of something colorful and interesting that no i i agree that in terms of like how i decorate my own spaces yeah. i don't have a lot of photography up there's photography you know there's actually very few photographs that rise to the level of something i would willing to look at a lot right graphic design painting other 
forms of media are much more moving to me, much more pleasing in a daily way. Right. It's interesting that a lot of people have sensitivities toward this, but don't change their work or don't change the way they think about it or their, the, the kind of clients they might accept to actually focus in this way. But you have really, you know, at least in terms of what you put out into the world have changed the narrative of what you do. Now, people probably know that you also do some editorial work with people or an advertising with people. Yeah. I actually really like that. If you go to your website, even though we've worked together for X many of years, there are a lot of my clients know I work with you, but there's no evidence that <laughs> I've ever had anything to do with it, yeah. which I think is actually really great because it's almost like magic. Like, no, there was no, no, there was no one behind the curtain. So there's, all, there's like two parts of this for me that kind of led me to that space. There's one part where like a lot of the work I do is clearly somebody worked on it heavily to make it clean and crisp and like dimensional and stuff. So I'm not, I don't feel like I have to hide the fact that I worked on something for a lot of the portrait work. I prefer to be far more invisible. And honestly, for a lot of the still life work, I feel like my job as a retoucher is to make somebody look at the photo and say, wow, that person took the most beautiful photo of that that could like possibly be. And in some cases, it's like, oh, man, you know what? That chicken sandwich, if I work really hard at home to make that recipe, I could maybe make that and make it look like that. Like, I love that, like the most perfect version of something that is also accessible to normal people. Right. Right. That's the line I try to straddle all the time. I don't like inaccessible things. You know what I mean? I'm a real person. I like looking at a photo and feeling like it's reachable and it's something that I can create. Since I'm a lot of times in the food or product space, like I love the idea of having just something feel like not stressful when you look at it. So when I started thinking about how I wanted to present myself to the world, I kind of said, okay, well, you have two directions you can go in. You can be like this jack of all trades person who does a little bit of everything and, you know, like try to be a catch all for any kind of work that comes in. And anybody who goes to your website who's looking for anything will find something that potentially speaks to what they need. And then you could maybe get hired for it, which is a dangerous path in general. Totally, completely dangerous. I mean, they're both dangerous paths, to be honest with you. The other side of that is like, and I, I kind of just, I, I kind of want to be like in 20 years, like the four by five retoucher, sort of like that equivalent of it, where like I take longer and I'm a process person and I, I like to spend time looking on things and sleep on it and figure out what, how we can make it better or whatever and use techniques that maybe, you know, I'm not extending backgrounds using the latest quick tool that I can just click a button and the computer does it. You know what I mean? I like being in there and doing it myself because the craft is what gets me going every single day and excites totally, me. Totally. So I kind of said to myself, if you close your eyes and you open them and like your day was ahead of you, how would you want your day to be filled? And I want it to be filled with like happy, colorful things that I can make look good that somebody can look at it and they can take a deep breath and they say maybe like, 
wow, that's cool. Or I could do that. Or, you know, in, in a commercial sense, like, oh, I want to buy that. Cause that's cool. You know what I mean? It's not. Yeah, um, totally I do. And I feel like I'm most successful in the still life space communicating that. And I think I honestly, I just like like colorful, fun things too. I mean, I, it sounds so I, stupid, but no, no, I, to- I totally understand it. And the way you make it, the way you describe it, I even agree with, I get stuck then in that I can't do the still life part of it. I, I have, cause of my personality. Like I, I respect what Sam does. I respect what these, what the Voreas do. I, I respect Sam that Kaplan. process. Sam, Sam Kaplan. Yeah. Yeah. It's the best. He's one of your big clients yeah. and one of your buddies, I'm sure. And I, you know, I've met Sam. He's great. I don't want to be in a studio by myself, moving shit around incrementally for hours. Mm-hmm. I, I literally can't. I mean, I love details and I like occasionally on a shoot, we'll have just like a luxurious amount of time to do setup and writing right. whatever else. And so and I like change, you know, I like figuring out, you know, like, Oh, okay, well, if we do this, blah, blah, blah. That's cool, you know, because every space is different. Every opportunity is different. The lights work differently in every, I mean, like, even when you think you know exactly what you're going to get, it's not going to be the thing. So I, I dig grinding down on some details occasionally, but still life, because it's divorced of what can happen in a room between people and the unpredictability of it. Right. I can't, I can't do it. I can't get, I can't really, I really can't do it. Also, it's the, some of the most technically demanding nuance things you do in photography. Yeah. And so there, you know, I just didn't go to school for that. There are levels of which I, no one gets until they really start trying to do that right. on a sophisticated level. That's what we're seeing here. I f- am frustrated with the industry and, uh, and its reliance on still life, but there we're also talking about more and more complicated things that you can't really express in a portrait of some random person that doesn't really get to what we're talking about. Right. So I understand a reliance on it more and more, but I also wonder if still life is kind of, you know, this is just me talking, but in looking at your website, it, everything's beautiful. Everything's really interesting. Everything's really colorful. Still life has become so devoted to like color plate backgrounds and like sort of this like wildly sort of palettes of color thing Yeah, that it's, it's almost broken completely away from reality in every possible way. And I worry about what that means because even with, you know, it's, it's, I almost said the word infected. I don't think that's fair. It has influenced wildly, you know, portraiture and everything else. And that like you have people doing, all of their entire website is portraits of people on some bright poppy right. palette of color. Totally. And it works when it's a product because it's just a better way to see it more cleanly. Right. Now it's a person. This person isn't a product. Why are they on a fucking bubblegum pink yeah, background? You're presenting them as a product that way. Right. Yeah, and so weird. we're not being thoughtful about the way we find people out of context in the universe. I agree. And I, I worry about what all that means. Also, the magic of what is out there anyway, if you're a little more careful and thoughtful about how you find people in what space and if you get out of these you know, studios we're all in every day for all this stuff, it's there. Like It's so much cooler to see like a great Peter Yang portrait shot on a random stoop in Brooklyn or you know, in some place in L.A. that he just used the environment to his advantage. You know, Peter, like myself, comes from a background in journalism and can find a thing and see its value and then work with a fame, maybe a famous subject and then improvise. And suddenly the world is there. The person's there. There's a concept and it's all heightened because it all exists in real life. Right. It doesn't need to have this monolithic plate of poppy color to try to influence our emotional 
reaction to it. Completely aligned with everything that you just said. I think if you put something in the studio space, you're manufacturing the result before you take the picture effectively. You know what I mean? You're limiting yourself in such a small scope of what the end result is going to be. And for a lot of jobs, like still life specifically, sometimes there's a layout before the job shoots in a deck where the text is on the top left and then they're running like the object or whatever you're shooting on the bottom right. And the brand color is blue. So it has to be blue. And then like, uh, this is their lighting style that they usually like to do. So there's all these little individual bits and pieces that you have to put together and you kind of land at a place where it's like, yes, I can put my spin on it a little bit, but I'm relatively constrained to. Sure very small bubble of possibility and can't break out anywhere of that or else I'll get yelled at and never get hired again or, you know, be viewed as like uh, some kind of stubborn recalcitrant, like a blowhard who's making a big deal out of <laughs> something that they should just, you know, be a yes man and, and go with it. Um, stubborn recalcitrant blowhard. I like that's that. That's me. It's my I new could, website. I could, I could do it. Man. I could do it. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's been a while since one tiny hand started. Maybe that's ready for the next, uh, the next iteration. Time. For people who don't know what it is, Zach has an ongoing project. Well, I haven't done project. it in like two or three years, but I, I mean, know, I go back it, to it. Sometimes. It has existed it, it's for a long exists, time. Sort of. And you took relatively banal news photographs yeah. and you changed them in a significant but also sort of subtly quiet way which is very you so that the people in them often very powerful world leaders had one hand which was far far too tiny yeah and that's it that's the that's the over render on the job it is uh, it is the, the uh, quietest weapon. sort of like it's a tiny bit of like revolutionary fuck you in the quietest yeah. little happiest dullest kind of way how did that get started and what did that mean to you when you were doing it more actively became quite the viral sensation yeah it was pretty crazy so i actually i was in that job that i talked about that i was at 11 months you know that wasn't the perfect fit for me but people would take smoke breaks you know while sets were changing or models were changing or whatever and they'd go out for five or ten minutes and i was not a smoker um and kind of don't like being around smoke so i would hang out inside and be alone (laughs) and i (laughs) and i'd have I'd have all of these folders full of like model photos that had just been taken of like people posing with their hands at their sides or whatever. And I was like, well, I'm sitting here for five or 10 minutes. Like, what can I possibly do? This is like a true story. Like there wasn't enough time to do something weird to two hands convincingly. There was like only (laughs) in a smoke break. I could only like do the quality work that I wanted to do on one hand. So I started accruing this random folder and I would like show people and they'd be like, what the fuck? This is so weird. And I'd be like, I know, whatever. So then I got fired from the job. It was like November, I don't know, late October or something. And the Wait, weird- but you didn't get fired because of your folder of tiny hands. No, 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 no. Uh, it probably didn't. That help. would, that would be a good story. Is if like HR came in and was like, you can't be making these weird photos. You're gone. <laughs> Um, that would complete. That was the next step. Would, if you'd last another week, they were coming. They um, had it scheduled. No, I just got fired because I just was not a good fit and I had like boss issues or whatever. And I just, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not the guy who hangs out. I don't like having meetings about having meetings. I like getting things done. I'm sure you've picked that up about me. I'm a, I'm a doer. Anyway, 
and a lover. Everyone knows you were and a lover. <laughs> so I'm out of that job. And then the weirdly, like the thing I missed the most was making tiny hands. But I no longer have this like endlessly refreshing resource of model photos. So I was like, well, what should I do? I'll just like Google random people online and like celebrity photos and start making tiny hands in between freelance jobs that I'm doing. And I guess a couple times I just like posted them on, I don't know, Facebook or something like that. And people were like, what the hell is this? This is insane. Like, I just looked at this for 20 minutes. My mind is blown. And I was like, I don't know. I took 10 minutes to do this. I don't think it's that big of a deal. But over the course of like a month or two, people started saying like, you got to make a Tumblr of this. This is crazy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I we don't just know. put it definitely in a time period. What was a that? Tumblr. We, we definitely put it in a time period. Oh, Tumblr yeah. Was. So this is when like Tumblr was like the best thing for single serve, like dumb photo sets that were yeah. awesome momentarily, but like very flashy. And, and, and porn. And be, porn. Correct. Fair. Porn. Yes. Big time. Long story short, my friend Bob was basically like, you got to make a Tumblr out of this. Everyone was telling me to do it. I was dragging my feet. I was like, this is stupid. People are going to think I'm a weirdo. And then Bob was like, you know what? 50 people will know about it. You'll be like the weird guy in Boston with the tiny hand website. And that's a good thing. (laughs) And I was like, all right, you know what? Like I can fill that niche in the world and be like weird Boston, tiny hand website guy. I'm fine with that. That's like on brand for me. Our friend James made a logo. We got like this stupid, like super minimal web, like a web template for the Tumblr. And we put it up like on a Tuesday or Wednesday or something like that. It was eight years ago. And again, my expectations are like 50 people are going to like visit this website today. And then one of my Facebook friends was like, this is amazing. I'm putting it on Reddit or like I'm making a Reddit post. And I'm not like an internet person. Yeah, I'm I don't not a Reddit know guy how either. any of this works. I don't even know if it registered with me, like putting it on Reddit. Like, and I think a lot of things get put on Reddit. Nothing ever like oh, 99.99% sure. of stuff gets put on Reddit. Nothing happens. So I was just I was a little oblivious and didn't understand what that meant, I guess. And then suddenly I started getting like emails like, oh, amazing website. And then some people were like, oh, this is offensive. Fuck you. You know, it's offensive. So uh, someone has a, there's like a whole dark side to this thing. There's a thing called Poland (laughs) syndrome, which is literally where somebody, you know, their, their limbs are affected by having the syndrome. And yeah, but that's not what you were doing. No, but right. The sensitivities were there already. Unfortunately, one of the downsides of the internet is that it doesn't afford the luxury of having like a personal and private conversation with someone to explain their intentions. Wait, Wait, it doesn't? <laughs> Shit. I know, I wish. So anyway, I discovered that like very quickly when people were sending death, like literally death threats, like you're an, a- you're an ableist monster. An, ab- an ableist monster. Yeah, no, it was it was. Did you really reply bad. that you were a contrarian? You know, Wait, I literally, I didn't leave my apartment for a few days. I was really, it really like messed with me. It was a, oh, it was terrible. a very disorienting experience. That was, um, and, and I really didn't create this thing with the expectation that it would be something. So when it was, when that happened, I was not like ready for that. So anyway, somebody from Tumblr reached out. We ended up working with Tumblr directly and made like tiny hand stories for them for a little while. Oh, wow. 
Her name's Jessica Bennett. She used to run sort of the editorial branch of Tumblr. And now she's like an amazing person at the New York Times doing all these incredible things on gender. I wanted to do a photo of Aziz Ansari because I loved uh, Parks and Recreation. And this photographer, Noah Kalina, who I already was a fan of, shot this amazing photo of him eating noodles. And I emailed him and I said, like, hey, this photo's awesome. He's got his hand like up to a noodle bowl. <laughs> right place. It's like perfect for tiny handing because there's chopsticks. So you can tell like a scale issue. And like, I love your photos. Like, please, can I make a tiny hand out of this photo? Because I, I, at that point, I was emailing everybody because, you know, I care about photo rights and stuff. Sure. And, um, and now, like, the, I talk to him every day. He's like my best friend. So many good things came out of it. But I and also it, it was kind of a permission slip for me to be like, OK, you can be yourself. You know, you don't have to be ashamed of being a weirdo. You can just like do the weird shit that like feels natural to you and share it with other people instead of just. Well, I mean, in general, a friendship with no Kalina was going to help you bridge that gap since he's been doing kind of whatever the fuck he wanted artistically <laughs> that for is, that is as long as the Internet has been around. Thank God. Yeah, no, was no, was awesome. Um, no, it is awesome. We'll have Noah on here soon enough. Nice. Conversation yeah. has started. He's a fun dude. He's a, he's a, a fun super, dude. Super nice guy. He just sent, he sent me the seeds that I'm trying to, that I'm killing, yeah, man. actively murdering right now in my apartment. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm jealous of your, of your, of your bro ship. You know, there's a lot, I don't get a lot of, uh, I don't get any baked goods coming my way. I'll put it that way. I, you know Zach. what? I don't ship him baked goods. Well, which, I feel like there's some sort of pneumatic tube system you guys set up. I don't know a, what's going on. This is a thing but, uh, I think about all the time because like I desperately want to figure out a way to ship baked goods to people. It is a thing that I think about constantly. No, right, I know. You right and I have now, had multiple conversations about shipping I know. Baked goods. Well, right now yeah. with this like whole Corona thing going on, sure. you know, I used to bake things for people like multiple times a week and I would just yeah. be like, hey, what are you doing? I'm coming by and I'm bringing you a pie. Like that was a thing that would happen all the time with me. And now like, I can't even like, I can basically like walk outside my building or something, but that's you know, it. So. There is, a, there's a lot of crossover between baking and retouching. Totally. Oh no. It's a, it is a completely synchronous process in my brain of like taking ingredients and elements of something and combining them and then making them into something like latticing the top of a pie is an incredibly detail oriented mm -hmm. gentleness. And there's like a delicateness that you need to yeah. approach it with sort of a methodology that you have to employ when you're doing it. Same thing with putting a tart shell together or something and arranging fruit on the top of the tart. Like there's a lot of visually, I, I just like making beautiful things for people and giving it to them. And most of the time when I'm making things for stuff, I'm thinking about those people and like, I'm excited about doing something for them. It's less about me making something and being like, sure. But even the way baking works, like, you know, I'm a cook. I love cooking yeah. and I do some baking, but I don't do a lot of it. And part of the reason is that my cooking is not experimental, but it's, you know, it's a process, but that is not specific to, I don't need to weigh any ingredients. It's more about taste and, right. the, and the evolution of flavor. Baking, as we all know, is much more specific to the ratios of things. And yeah. But see, like you saying that you like cooking more makes perfect sense to me because for me, the cooking thing that I'm less good at is a far more organic thing. And you have to be a little bit more on your feet mm -hmm. and you have to season and adjust and you have to kind of be ready for like, oh, if the 
liquid boils down a little bit too quick. I need to add this much back in and you kind of have to be on your toes and ready to make totally. it's, decisions. It's much more spontaneous. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think sometimes you have to also say like, Oh, I went to the market and like this thing in the recipe, I was going to get that, but it didn't look too good or it's not in right. season. What's a good so substitute? I'm going to get yeah, that sure. thing instead. Whereas baking is like, you can't be like, well, I feel like I'm going to use a cup and a half of flour today instead of two and a half cups because that just feels good today. You know, right. that's not, that's not a thing. I think they're like, it or almost, I'll use almond flour instead of, you know, all purpose. Well, it'll be a one-to-one I literally comparison. had that conversation with somebody the other day who was like, oh, I'm going to try this with almond flour. And I'm like, well, that's like totally cool, but there are consequences to using sure, almond flour where you have to you know, either add a little bit more or since there's a protein content differential between flour and almond flour, you have to potentially add a little bit more leavener. Like there are a lot of yeah, it's chemistry. Yeah, exactly. So I, I've always viewed retouching, you know, I, I started out in college as like a mechanical engineering major and then I moved to animation and then finally I landed in photography and the way I got into retouching was literally to pay bills at school. People would give me scans, uh, negatives to scan. And mm. I was cleaning negatives for a bunch of different teachers. And then I was spending time on the computer all the time and just cleaning things. And it didn't bother me being at a computer and cleaning other people's work. I liked it. I liked something very satisfying them. about it. Yeah. I mean, you put on a NPR or like, something like that or music, anything you're listening to. And it's like, there's, there's, it's also just like, you can do it at two o'clock in the morning. You know what I mean? It's right. not a thing where you have to be at a desk at a day job. I could go to class and then I could get home and then I could scan negatives and do stuff. Um, I got an Epson, I think V750 scanner. Oh yeah. That like math science art kind of Venn diagram intersection thing has always been a place where like, I like all of those things equally. I've tried to do my best and figuring out what I wanted to do. I was kind of trying to figure out how I could explore being in that sweet spot of math, science, art, figuring out a career where I could do that. And, you know, retouching allows me to be creative when I'm able to be creative and make suggestions and try new things. So I get the art part. The science part really is what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, which was like structuring files in like a very methodical way and kind of employing a process from start to finish and having a reasonable expectation what that experiment will yield if I employ different steps along the way. And then the math thing is just how do you do work on one file and scale it across 20 in a fast and efficient way and sort of find time-saving ways of arriving at a result in a way that you can repeat consistently and those types, you know, lots of numbers-based things, S-curves, all of those things are mathematical. You know what I mean? It's just math that we're doing. Levels, yeah, adjustments, sure. histograms. Like, I mean, that's all. So that nerdy kind of part is checked off for me. That The baking thing checks off all those boxes for me too. Watching a, sure. a cake rise is like the most amazing thing in the whole entire world to me. It's crazy. Well, I mean, similar to photography, there's a, there's an element of magic involved. Yeah. Even if you know exactly what's happening, watching carbon dioxide escape a thing and, and inflate it while it's proofing, you're like, fuck, it's, you know, it's like, mind blowing every it is. time. It is incredible that that happens. Like it is so fucked up and amazing that you can like yeah. mix a yeast packet and watch like a, 
a thing rise and then punch it down and then do it. I mean, it is, it's a living thing that's fucking yeah, rising. At this point, I think it's we crazy. need to acknowledge the fact that since we know how much this means to you and I, that one of the two of us within the next two weeks will certainly be making sourdough bread. I mean, it's going to happen. I'm I mean, fighting the sourdough thing. I don't know why. I Everybody's know you are, doing, but you're, I, I you're be fighting it because everyone's doing it and not because you don't want to do it. Well, I've been like stress baking for 15 years. This is my Super Bowl. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so that's funny. The sourdough thing is super interesting to me. And like, I do want to like go down. Well, that's that why, that's why you're going to be doing it. Cause it's, it's too interesting for you not to not do. Yeah. It's taking everything we just said, but taking it up another notch. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like satisfying. I actually, I make vanilla extract every year, which is like a oh, right. super simple thing where you just like basically split the vanilla beans, put it into different liquors. And then you, I shake it. Like I make a rule for myself every Wednesday at seven o'clock, I shake the vanilla bottles and then I keep it in a dark spot. And then I, I brew mine for six months instead of for the normal, which is usually like a six to eight week situation, um, sometimes 12 weeks. Um, but then you get like double strength, really good, like Baker's vanilla extract, bottle it up and give it to a ton of people every year. It's my favorite thing. This year, I was going to do something called Nocino, which is like an Italian liqueur where you take green walnuts and you split them and then you soak mm. them in alcohol. You give it to people, but then they're not able to actually drink it for another year and a half or two years. Oh, cool. Which I think is like the coolest freaking thing that you have this object and then they're supposed to shake it every little, you know, I love that stuff. Like it's Italian and French. Oh, it's French. French too? Oh yeah. 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 The French oh, um, have a whole like thing around the walnuts that you ferment. You do a whole thing with. Yeah. Oh, crazy. And we have a black walnut tree in our backyard. No way. And, and I've always tried to figure out how to better use it. Cause for some reason the walnuts that come off our tree, like fucking deteriorate so goddamn fast. Yeah that does it stain everything everything okay because that was the one warning that my friend gave me about making nocino was that like if, if you split a green walnut and you don't wear gloves your black your hands will literally turn black black and they totally. will be black for weeks it's not a thing you can wash your hands and no, have no, no, it it's away. like a it's a powerful it's almost like a resin kind of thing yeah like, i've always been really into that potential i have a couple friends who make bitters or do a thing it's yeah. such a it's so simple and yet so like, holy shit, this is like, you know, it's yet again, it's magic. Exactly. No, I yeah. mean, it's those, those like, I love that simple space where you just like care about something and give someone something. That's well, that really also, is what I try to employ in like the work I do too. You know, it's not, I'm not saving lives, you know what I mean? Like, but I, I yeah. actually care about what I, I, I sincerely like deeply invest myself. You do. And I'm not either. Uh, my wife too. occasionally is, but you know what we're doing when we, you know, we say simple and what, I think what we mean is it's so it's being aware of the seasonality and the delicateness of life and death. Like, yeah. you know, like when we see the thing in full bloom and we, we use it to its potential and distill it in time and make it last for time, you know, the same way you're doing with vanilla pods or with walnuts or whatever else. Like it's just understanding that things have life in them and then trying to continue that life when the days get dark. Yeah. And that's the magic of the universe we live in. Like that's just all we're just in tune with. It just reminds me about how lucky we are that we're living through some dark days with the coronavirus. But the very fact that it's spring outside is so impactful for the way we're dealing with it. Because if this was dead of winter, yeah, this would be so much more fucked up. Yeah. I mean, it would be so much harder to deal with, especially, you know, I've as you might have heard I have kids running around all above me <laughs> yeah. like crazy. And like 
just the fact that they can go out, run outside. I mean, I think they're at, it's quiet now, so they're probably outside running around like crazy there. The fact that that's possible has made this so much easier to bear. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, for them more than for me. Speaking of paying attention and being rewarded. Yeah. So yet again, reference Noah Kalina. You recently worked with him on a campaign for MoMA that you guys just put out into the world a few months ago. Yeah. It seemed like from the outside, it was this really cool opportunity. What was it like to work not only again with your close friend, Noah, but also on this project for this institution, which is so important to so many. I, um, I actually grew up on Long Island, half an hour outside of the city on the LIRR in Oceanside. I would go to the MoMA with my mom sometimes. And it was like, we would have like a city day and I loved all the art there. And I have a lot of really good memories of that space. This opportunity came up where Noah had bid for this job for the MoMA and it was a bunch of files. They needed them quickly. They were opening the new museum um, in October. There rarely is an opportunity for photographs of like empty spaces with people interacting in those spaces to be taken in an organized and methodical way across the whole museum. Uh, and empty spaces like, um, you know, the courtyard and stuff like that, that doesn't exist because the museum's always open. People are always in and out of there. You know, immediately, like, I I was excited about this opportunity. He asked me if I wanted to work on it. Obviously, I said yes. And this one stood out because I actually was going to get to go to the museum while no one was there and walk through and answer questions about whether we could move one piece of art to the other side of the room if the curators decided to change where the location of the piece would be. You know, you'd see, like, somebody standing with their hand against their face and pursed lips thinking like, well, should that painting go on this wall or on that wall? Oh, cool. And there's suddenly all these, like, I just have a lot of like mental snapshots of things like that that happen of um, things. You don't think about those things happening when you just walk into a museum space. Sometimes you are walking and you're like, Oh, well, obviously this is here. Or I'll go to that room. Cause like, you know, that's the room of the things I like. Sure, but it's a version of MoMA being actually alive and the curators it being was, actively trying to figure out where things should live. And then also just being like three feet from something in a quiet room, like sort of alone, is a. it was just a profound life experience. And then to have that experience with like such a close friend and see that person succeeding and doing something that was just beautiful work at the top of his game for this institution of New York, it's very validating for me to see my friends take on projects that allow them to shine. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is the thing I derive the most pleasure from in my career is the ability to help my friends succeed. It's just a wonderful thing. And like I, that opportunity to work with those people and be in that space and sort of do something for the city that I've always loved. It just will be something like I really take with me for a really long time. I, I think about it frequently and I just can't believe that actually happened. And, you know, I, I wanted to say about Noah's pictures of MoMA. I really respect MoMA filling their beautiful spaces mm -hmm. with people. Yeah. And having little pieces of life happen amongst this art, as has happened in the history of that organization, that institution, 
I think Noah was a wonderful pick for those pictures. And I really respect the fact that they could have picked any number of amazing architecture photographers who could have captured the most dynamic versions of these spaces and lots of different things. They could have, they could have done anything, but they chose something which ultimately I think was a much more elegant representation of the thing they're trying to do. I always loved, you know, I I've never been an architecture photographer. I've never, that's never been the thing I do, but I love when places like MoMA or, you know, back in the day and still dwell, have these beautiful spaces, but then they fill them with the reason why they're there. There's life happening. There's a kid running through. There's, you know, there's something, there's some reason why. And I thought that was a really big success of Noah's work in that, in that space. And I thought it was really cool to see. Yeah. I mean, the the crazy thing about a lot of those or all of the photos that he took was that a lot of times people shoot like spaces with people in them. Noah shot like people in spaces and somehow that strengthened the spaces. I mean, none of these things were forced. No one said like, Oh, it would be a good idea if you got down on, you know, there was this beautiful older couple sitting on a bench in front of an enormous painting. And the husband like rested his head on his wife's lap and kind of looked up and, it was just like this like restful contemplative taking it all in at the museum moment that was so beautiful. You know, your eye drifts and you see this magnificent space with like a big piece of art and you're like, Oh, what a wonderful space. And like, I could see this and walk up to this thing and it would be great for me to go to this thing. And it will, it was really, it was all about the experience of being at the museum. I felt that in such a profound way being there for like three or four days while he was shooting it. Cool. Yeah, that's great. I want to end by talking about kindness. Okay. Not only because it couldn't be more important right now. Certainly kindness is closely aligned with patience, which is something I'm trying to hold on tighter to me too. (laughs) (laughs) We all are. one of the things that has always obviously struck me and anyone else who knows you is that you make a very concerted effort to push kindness into the world around you. And it's not always been necessarily very easy for me to receive it from you because Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm just like, you know, you and I are similar in lots of ways, but also have pretty different personalities. And you, you've worked with other people, you know, we've already brought up Guido enough, but you know, Guido and I, to some degree, are similar in that we can be kind of volcanic, but also be extremely passionate and caring about our family and other things. But for sure. because we've been working together for so long, there are times in which we had some interaction. I was just clearing that you were going to be able to work on something I have coming up. And I was just telling you, hey, look out, you know, there might be this thing. I don't know. I don't know any details yet, but it might there might be a situation where I need your help and might be on a deadline and blah, blah, blah. And they'll give you a heads up and you're like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, let me know, blah, blah. I should be able to fit you in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you're like, Hey, and also, you know, have a great Tuesday. I'm just like, Holy shit. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know. I can't, I can't, I can't do it, man. Dial it down, dude. (laughs) Well, but you know, the truth is I love you for it. I really respect it because it's not easy to be the one who is trying to just generate a little bit more, thoughtfulness and kindness in anyone's daily life or anything else. It isn't. I I mean, as a father, 
as a human, as a, as a person experiencing the world, as a person trying to deal and be aware, but also, you know, like I, I don't believe in not reading what's going on. I don't believe in ignoring politics. I don't believe in not being armed with information, which I think is very important to be a citizen in this country or any country. But that is also not a reason why we can't go out into the world and be kind and patient and, and caring and loving and, and all these other things. And so as much as it has over time been sort of stopping my tracks, me like, fuck dude, it's Tuesday. Okay. I'm going to try to have a happy Tuesday, but at the same time, you know, <laughs> this last, this week and last week and last several weeks, yeah. you've been on Instagram and other places, just been trying to remind people to, to be well. Yeah. And to be kind, this is not a revolutionary message, but it's very meaningful to me that you put forth that effort. And I know it is a very heartfelt effort on your part. And it is a special act of creativity to do that. And I think it's something that I not only want to note, but I want to talk to you about the role that kindness has played in your work and also your sort of sense of self and value. How has kindness been a part of the way you view the world and the way you act? Wow. Uh, well, first, th thank you. That's, you said some nice things. That's really nice of you. I wake up every day and I say, like, what is my role today insofar as, like, what am I, what am I doing? And I'm doing what I love to do every day with people that care deeply for. There are a lot of small quiet extensions of kindness that happen in silence that people don't talk about that I think are really wonderful. I'm in New York city. And right now my windows don't face the street. They face an alley. And every day at seven o'clock, the whole city claps. Now, you know, since we face an alley and everybody's not facing a street, we're not really performing for anyone when we're doing it. You don't have to do that nobody's seeing you a cop isn't going to be driving down the street or there's not going to be a healthcare worker that views you out your window clapping making noise and celebrating the contributions that all of these people who are actually making an incredible contribution to the world are making right now and saving us and being amazing people but i see people hanging out their windows and taking wooden spoons and banging them on pans and just celebrating and cheering for others and there's a lot of crap and the president sucks and a lot of times things don't work out. But the net in this world is that people are really good. I think the human experience is really beautiful and should be celebrated every single day. And I just try to create moments every day for myself where I like close my eyes and I say, this person's in my life and I'm grateful for them. And sometimes after a long day, it's work to do that. You got to force yourself to do it. God knows it's easier to go off on a tirade on someone sometimes than to just like take a deep breath and be thankful. Well, it's energy expended one way or another. It just, for some reason, let some things pass seems like such a harder piece of work and energy expended. When in fact, it's you know, actually probably a lot easier. Yeah, I've, I personally find being 
negative and nasty to be far more emotionally draining and a lot more of an investment and energy than to be positive. Like a lot of times people are like, oh man, you're so like chipper and positive and like all the smiley faces in the emails or whatever. Like that, I, I actually feel that way. That's not like a thing where I'm conditioned to make a smiley face. Like I'm actually smiling if I'm sending that smiley face. That's a real thing for me. Oh, no, no, no. You're definitely sincere. That's that's not even a part of it. Yeah. I like living in a space that's defined by the incredible kindness and generosity that exists inside every person and celebrating it as much as I can in the small ways that I've tried to try to do it. Well, it's important work and I thank you for it. As always, great connecting with you. And until our next little adventure into photo world. I'm looking forward to it, John. You're the best. Me too, buddy. Thanks, Zach. Good talking to you. You too. My thanks to Zach for his important words. See much more of his fantastic work at ZachVitale.com. That's Z-A-C-H-V-I-T-A-L-E.com or on Instagram at Zach Vitale. And friends, if you're picking up what Eyeball is putting down, please visit us on Apple Podcasts and rate us five stars. Of course, we give thanks to Scott Pryor, putting it down on the one and the two. Listen more at scottpryermusic.bandcamp.com. We'll talk to you next week. This is my dad's podcast, and it's called Eyeball. <laughs> Goodbye, you crazy animals.